working through the book of Acts. And I've just enjoyed getting a front row seat with you guys to kind of uh, revisit the church's foundations. Like walking with um, the, the beginnings of the church and seeing how the gospel begins to spread after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We get to watch the gospel take root and flourish in the days following Jesus. And I really love how the NIV Study Bible kind of describes it in a sentence. It says, Acts is fundamentally about the mission of the church and the progress of salvation from its Jewish roots to the Gentile world. In our text today, what we're going to see is there are three very different responses when the good news starts to spread. When people come face to face with the good news of Jesus, there are three very different responses, and that's what we're going to unpack here today. But before we do that, let's go to God's Word. Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and go all the way to verse 25. And if you're following along with your own Bible or with an app, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version if you want to take a moment to switch there if you have that. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they had paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that I, anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord. 
that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is designed to help point us to you, Jesus. It's here to help us grow, to conform what we think and how we live to you, Jesus. And so I pray that you would do that in all of our hearts today. Help us to love you more deeply, obey you more fully, put you on display wherever we go. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever seen or heard something said, kind of in a a group of people, the same thing is said, it's said in the same way, but like there are varied responses to that news. Like, for example, I was was watching some of those gender reveal videos. Have you guys seen those? So like there's these extravagant gender reveals. They're really kind of cool. Um, But the ones that are hilarious are when like they're telling their kids the, the next, the gender of their next baby. So I watched this one where this, this little girl and this little boy, probably like two and four, somewhere in there, um, they were, their parents were telling them what they're going to have next. And so they said, what we're going to have is a girl. And the little girl was like, yeah, like going nuts. And then the boy, <laughs> I don't want a baby sister. Like that. <laughs> That was, what, that was his response. It was incredible. We had an interesting moment in, in our life when we were, we were getting ready to have Levi and we were telling our kids what our sixth was going to be. Uh, we sat them all at the table and we put these little candies under the cups and they were just going to take them all off at the same time and we we're going to have some fun. So keep in mind, in that moment, the girls were, they were outnumbered. Uh, four to one at that time. And so everybody, including the boys, wanted a little girl. I think the boys wanted a little girl so they didn't have to share their stuff with another boy. But... Whatever. So, he, so we did all this. We line it all up. We say, ready, set, go. And they pull out the cups and they, you see all their faces. It's really funny. So Josiah and Isaiah were like, candy, yeah. They didn't care. Like they did not care what it was. Did not care. Isaiah, or sorry, uh, uh, Annabelle, so our one daughter, she, she had this like angry, but like smiling face. I can't, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, I'm mad, but I still get candy, but we're still having a baby. So I'm still cool with that. But like, I don't know what to do with this. She was weird, but it was Daniel. So my oldest, he got sad, like genuinely sad. And I found him like five minutes later away from the table, sitting in the corner, kind of pouty, like really sad because he wanted a baby sister. It was the cutest thing. But same news, same truth, same delivery, varied responses. And that's, I think, what we see actually in Acts chapter 8 today. When people are coming up against the good news of Jesus, they respond in so many different ways. Same news, same delivery, same glorious Jesus who died for their sins. Yet three very different Responses. And the first one is this. You, let me, let me say it this way. When you come face to face with Jesus, with the good news of Jesus, you can respond in many ways. There's three I see here. You can respond and you can persecute. You can persecute because it threatens your way of 
life. Let's take a look at our text together. Uh, We're introduced to this man named Saul. Actually, introduced is not the right word. We see him actually earlier in chapter 7. And in in verse 58 of chapter 7, we see that Stephen is being stoned. uh, And then we read this interesting verse where it says, They laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this is not an unnecessary detail or a simple detail that was just included that gives us no information. No, what we see in this moment is Saul is kind of standing, watching Stephen be killed for his faith. And if I could picture him, he's probably got this smug look on his face, maybe his arms crossed as he watches this man die approvingly. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 8 says he approved. It says, and Saul approved of this execution. So Saul, as he's hearing about Jesus and and as he's seeing what's going on as people are coming to know Jesus and have faith in Jesus and, and the world is being transformed, his response to the gospel is persecution. Because he is threatened. His way of life is threatened by the good news of Jesus. You see, Saul is no different than some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Jesus came preaching an upside-down kingdom. He came in and turned their world upside down. In a day when they relied on sophisticated systems of rules and regulations, Jesus showed up and just defied them, did things different that made them angry. When they focused on the outward appearance, how someone looked on the outside, Jesus showed up and valued humility and repentance. And he showed them what matters is actually what's on the inside. And that that begins to change what's on the outside. The religious leaders of Jesus' day sought over and over and over again to kill him because they were threatened by him. But Jesus did not allow it until it was his proper time. The religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus and Saul followed their Actions. He followed right after them. Saul made war. He made war on the people of God. It says here in our text that he uh, ravaged the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women and tossing them in prison. Came face to face with the good news of Jesus and said, no, I will not have any of this. So when you think about this first response to the gospel, it's one that's happening all over the world. But I think we have to sometimes ask the question, like, what does this have to do with me? Because I'm, I'm guessing you're, you're not in here because, like, you're doing this on the side. Like you're, <laughs> like, you're coming here on Sunday and then hopping into some small group houses, taking people, tossing them into, like, jail. Like, that's not happening. You're not here because of that. But I have three questions for all of us today, kind of as we unpack this response to the gospel. The first question is just quite simply, how are you responding to the good news of Jesus? How are you responding to the gospel? I think in a room this size and through our multiple services at multiple campuses, there's probably some people here who don't love Jesus. And in fact, might be here, not they don't just not love Jesus, but they may hate what he stands for. Maybe he says some things about how their life should be lived and it's frustrating to them. It feels an attack on their identity. It feels an attack on who they are. 
Maybe they spend their time, maybe this is you, denying Christ, mocking Christians, and trying to destroy the church however you can. I just want to speak just for a moment before we move on to you. If that's you here today, I'm incredibly glad that you're here. I love you, and I've actually prayed for you. There are other options for how you can respond to the gospel, and you'll hear that as we keep going. I know building your life on a, uh, building your own life or orienting your life around a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago sounds crazy. Like, I get it. But you won't regret it, regret it. And I want you to do one thing. I want to encourage you to do one thing. Have a conversation in the next week with somebody that you think loves Jesus and loves you. Just ask them some questions. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? And come with a heart of learning. So that's my first question. How are you responding to the gospel right now? But the second question is simple. Are you, this is more for the believer, if you're here and you say, I love Jesus, my second question for you is, are you surprised when you experience persecution? Like, are you surprised when things don't go how you think they should go? Whether it's uh, kind of that passive-aggressive social media comment or uh, being passed up for a job because you won't do things that are uh, against the law because of your, your faith in Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised. But can I be like 100% honest with you? We have it so good here. Like we have it so good in the States compared to what brothers and sisters of ours are experiencing all over the world. And that actually brings me to the third question is, do you pray for the persecuted church throughout the world? Easter weekend, 2019, 40 Christians killed in Nigeria. June 9th, the very day we're taking 150 people to high school camp, students and adults, where our biggest fear is, will I have enough food and get a warm shower? 50 armed militants rolled into a little village in Mali and killed 90 people. And according to one person familiar with the village, that was a third of the village, and all 90 were Christians. In a headline of an article posted on BBC uh, News in May, the headline read, Christian persecution at near genocide levels. And then according to a study done in 2018 of that year, over 245 million Christians live in places where they experience a high level of persecution, and we are not one of them. 4,305 Christians were killed for their faith. 1,847 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 3,150 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Brothers and sisters, we cannot allow the comforts of our country, however we experience them, to numb us to what our brothers and sisters are experiencing throughout the world. So my question again is, will you pray for the persecuted church? Saul's response to the gospel was to persecute the church. 
and it's happening all over the world, and we have the glorious opportunity to go to the Father on their behalf. Something my family's trying to do right now that we're just kind of in the beginnings of is we've set aside Monday at dinner for, for conversations and prayer about missions and things going on in the world. Done it a few times, and uh, we've gotten to talk about closed countries and what that looks like. We've gotten to pray for different missionaries and, and places that they're at. We've gotten to pray for our own missionaries here from our church family that are all over the world and other friends of ours who are serving in different places. Maybe you do something like that. Set aside some time in your life, whatever it looks like, to pray for the persecuted church throughout the world. Literally, they are dying for their faith. First option when anyone faces the gospel is they can choose to turn around and persecute the faith. But the second one we see here in our text is that you can choose to proclaim because you've experienced life transformation. So once again, same message, same news, different responses, and you can choose to proclaim because you've experienced life transformation. When you encounter the good news of Jesus, when you experience the grace, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness found through life, death, and resurrection, then you can, no, you get to shout it from the rooftops because he's so good. Romans 8, 4 is a simple verse. Sorry, I said Romans. Acts 4. Acts 8, 4 says, Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. It's one of those verses like we would just read right through normally. Yeah, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. But like you realize what this is saying, right? These people are fleeing for their lives, yet they're still preaching the word everywhere they go. Now I think... If anybody had the, kind of, the right to kind of lay low in this new city, they, they probably would. <laughs> like, hey, we got to this new spot. We're going to lay low so we don't get any more trouble. I don't want to have to flee again. I actually think, unfortunately, sometimes if, if we were counseling somebody in that same situation, we might actually tell them to lay low. And I think we would be getting in the way of God's plan to take the gospel everywhere people go. These people are fleeing to persecution. They're fleeing uh, uh, Saul and the other persecution that's being uh, poured out on them. Yet they're still scattering and preaching the word. That's pretty incredible. But then we meet this dude named Philip. Okay, let's keep going in this text. In verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, this is not actually the first time we've heard of Philip. Uh, he was talked about early in chapter 6, but we skipped that small portion as far as our preaching schedule. Philip was uh, one of the seven men raised to help the apostles and the disciples take care of some of the ministry needs going on in the early church, um, particularly caring for widows. They were looking for able people who were wise and full of the Spirit to carry a, some of the load for ministry. This is not Philip, an apostle or disciple. This is a, a man raised up to help take care of widows in their community. But as they're fleeing, this man named Philip, this normal dude, starts to preach and proclaim Christ in Samaria. 
And God does a wonder through this normal dude. He does amazing things, not just the signs and miracles, but people come to faith in Jesus as he proclaims the word of God, as he talks about Jesus, and as he lives out his faith, both in word and deed. He both does things to put Jesus on display. He says things to put Jesus on display. As he preaches, he performs miracles, and we see in verse 12 that people start to follow Jesus because of him. Just a normal dude, fleeing persecution, but choosing to proclaim rather than stay silent. Choosing to say, I will put Jesus on display no matter what's happening, no matter where I'm going, because I'll trust the results to God. But my favorite verse in this whole text is verse 8. It's a simple, yet I think profound verse. Look at it with me. It says, so there was much joy in the city. Another verse that we would just like bolt right on through. But as I thought about this verse, what what it's communicating to us is as Philip is proclaiming the word of God and as people are coming to faith in Jesus, the city is being transformed. There is joy in the city like never experienced. Yes, some of that is because uh, the paralyzed are walking Yes, some of it is because evil spirits are being cast out, but surely some of it is because new believers are coming to faith in Jesus. And they're radically transforming their community. There was much joy in the city. Church family, I want this to be us. It is my prayer that we would be this kind of joy bearer, joy bringer in Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati. That we could say our city is full of joy because of our proclamation of Jesus. Because of the way we live out our faith wherever we go. Because I think it is very clear. Persecution leads to joy when our response is proclamation. Persecution leads to joy in our life and those around us if our response to that persecution is proclamation. Not to run and hide. I love that little verse because it gives me hope for what God can do when faithful men and women, faithful young men and young women live out their faith in a city. There was much joy in the city. Brothers and sisters, how is your experience with Jesus when you've come face to face with the gospel, how is it bringing joy to your city? How is your coming face to face with the good news of Jesus bringing joy to your city. Are we joy bearers? Is Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky a better place because we're blanketing it with people who love Jesus and are living for him everywhere? Is your city, is your school, is your workplace, is your neighborhood, is your sports team, is your cul-de-sac Is your group that gathers at the park, is there more joy because you love Jesus and are displaying him in your city? 
Maybe just write this question down to consider later. But how can you more effectively bring joy with you where you go? How can you more effectively bring joy with you where you go? Can I, man, I love, what I love about working with high school students, my favorite thing about working with high school students is when one of them gets this, right? Like when they get this and you start to see them transform the the groups they hang with. You start to see them love people really well. You start to see them make sacrifices for their friends. You start to see them talk about Jesus with their friends. And, and small groups of people start to be full of joy. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, when you get it, whether you're 17 or 77, God wants you to be a joy bearer wherever you go. And when you get this, you understand the mission of God in the church, to be a joy bearer, a gospel bearer, wherever you go. Consider this for just a moment, church family. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Really dead. (laughs) But God sent his son Jesus who died on the cross for you and for me that if you would put your hope and trust in him repent of your sin you will have forgiveness and grace and mercy and eternity with God because your relationship has been renewed I don't want to call you to be a joy bearer without that as our foundation we don't just Go be joy bearers because rah, rah, we're together and it's fun. No, we go bear joy because we've experienced grace. We go bear joy because I was once a sinner. Because I was stuck. I was dead in my trespasses and sins in which I formerly walked. But God being rich in mercy made me alive. That's why we go. We don't have to go to China to be joy bearers. We could. Some of you might need to. But we can bear the joy of Jesus right where we're at. Whatever your context looks like, whatever age you are, God wants to work these things out in you. Our response must always be proclamation. As the the Christians are scattering, they choose to proclaim. As they flee, they chose to not forget. Church, would we not forget the grace we've received in Jesus? So when you come face to face with Jesus, you could persecute. You could proclaim. But there's also a third piece we see here in our text. You could also try to purchase power and influence but miss out on God. Now don't tune out on me. This is, we're going to dive into the life of Simon here and unpack it for today. But you could try to purchase power and influence, but all the while miss out on a relationship with God. So in verse 9, we're introduced to this man named Simon the magician. He's amazed many, many people. 
in Samaria. And he's convinced many people that he is great and powerful. He's actually convinced them, it sounds like, according to the text, that he has the power of God. He's convinced people that he is powerful because God has given him power. Yet when faced with the clear presentation of the gospel as Philip enters this city, people are less amazed with Simon and more amazed with Jesus. And they start to trust Jesus for salvation. Yet actually in verse 13, it actually says Simon even believed and was baptized. And then what we see as we continue through the text, I'm just trying to summarize so we can keep, keep working through this, is we see that uh, they send apostles to kind of confirm what's going on, and they pray and lay hands on them, and then the Spirit is received, and then Simon just goes, I want that. Whatever that is, I want that. Let's pick it up in verse 18 together. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon, still amazed at what Philip and the apostles can do, wants the power for himself. Now I think as we keep working through this, it'll be clear. But Simon is actually more enamored with the signs and miracles than he is with Jesus. He wants the power and the influence. He loved being uh, what amazed the people. He loved being at the heart of what they thought was good and powerful and right. And he wanted some of that himself. What Simon did not get was that it's never been about the signs. It's never been about the miracles. You know what signs are only good for? Pointing to something else. Like that's what a sign is for to send somebody's eyes or, or send you as a person in another direction. Signs were never meant to be worshipped or purchased. Signs were meant to point people to Jesus. When you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus you know, doing all kinds of signs and miracles, you see many people who don't get this either. They come and they watch and are enamored and they say, give us another and give us another. And they just never got it. They never got it. But even now, Simon, who's used to impressing people, wants desperately to have that same power. And then we see Peter, and his rebuke is rough. Like, it's rough. That first line in verse 20, may your silver perish with you, in the original language is basically to hell with you and your money. May you be destroyed with it. (laughs) Peter gets something that Simon does not get. And Peter can't imagine how somebody who's experienced Jesus could think they could turn around and purchase the gift or purchase the blessing. It was never about the signs, and no one, no one can purchase the blessing. Simon didn't get it. So let's walk through this this kind of rebuke for a few moments and then we'll turn our eyes back to like, what does this mean for me? But here's what we see. You can't buy the gift of God. You see that in verse 20. And Peter can't just, 
obviously we're not there. We don't have like emojis to like see like, like what he's really thinking or like what's his face like. But there's an exclamation mark and he's basically saying, may you die with your money. So I think he's being pretty aggressive in this moment. You can't buy the gift from God. And then he says, your heart is not right before God. Look at 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. What, if I could summarize that, what you want and what you're living for does not align with God. Does not align with God and his plans. But then we get this beautiful moment where Peter actually says, hey, repent. It was probably still pretty forceful, but saying, you can repent. It says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Repent. Even then, extending the opportunity to make things right, to repent of his sin. And then in verse 23, we get a few phrases that we don't really use very often. When was the last time you said, you're in the gall of bitterness? Like, uh, I don't use that in normal lingo. Uh, But it had this phrasing or understanding um, of just bitterness and envy. Uh, you, can, you can see something similar in Deuteronomy 29. We're not going to turn there. But it's this idea of this bitterness or envy that doesn't just pollute yourself, but it pollutes those around you as well. You are in the gall of bitterness. And then you are in the bond of iniquity, still stuck in your sin. But even now, he has an opportunity to repent to say, oh man, I totally didn't get that. I missed the boat. I, I don't know what to do. I, I will repent. But that's not what we see in verse 24. And I think that's the sad part that we see in this text. He says, he looks to Peter and says, pray for me to the Lord. That nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That's not a repentant heart. That's someone trying to avoid hard things. I just don't want to deal with the hard things that are coming. Simon was in trouble. And instead of repenting and seeking forgiveness or even showing any brokenness, he's more concerned about avoiding judgment or hard things. And he doesn't even pray himself. He says, would you pray for me? Simon wanted God for his power and his influence, but seems to be unrepentant. Some people would call Simon the first false convert. Throughout church history, there was a term used, you may have heard it, called simony. Simony was a term used uh, for somebody who used their power and influence, or, or, sorry, let me say this differently, who someone who purchased church power or influence or a position in a church. It was named for this dude. <laughs> like, what a way to go down in history. Forever now, his name is synonymous with trying to purchase something that belongs to God. You can come to Jesus for power, for influence, or social standing. And that's just like what Simon did. Now, I'm pretty sure some of you might be thinking, Ryan, I know for a fact that I've never 
talk to Pastor Brad about purchasing a gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, I've never gone, hey, Brad, like, what's the going rate right now for, like, the whole laying on the hands, giving the Spirit kind of thing? Like, nobody in here's done that. I mean, I don't think. <laughs> Nobody's done that. But I think what we see in this text, if we kind of broaden some of the application, is there are actually a lot of wrong ways to come to Jesus and wrong reasons to come to Jesus. We actually do live in a culture where sometimes there are still benefits to claiming Christ. Like we're often not going to be tossed in jail, killed or persecuted in the ways other people are. So sometimes in a church culture like this, even in our own church family, there are things to be gained by coming to Jesus. People will think well of you. Sometimes you'll have more freedoms if you grow up in a Christian home. You'll get celebration, man. When we, when we baptize people over here and everybody screams and is clapping and is excited, we're going to keep doing that. But, but like when that happens, it feels good. Sometimes it might appease your family, or I've seen this one a bazillion times. It'll help you get that guy or that girl. There are a lot of wrong reasons to come to Jesus. Some people are fleeing circumstances. There's something really hard going on in their life, and they've bought into the lie that Jesus is going to deal with all of the hard things and take them away. Whether somebody's said it to them, or they've just heard it somewhere, but Jesus did not promise to take away every hard thing in our life. He promised to take care of the most important thing, your salvation, to forgive you of your sin and help you to live out your faith, but he did not promise that all of the hardship will go away. Whether it's a health issue, whether it's a, uh, a family issue, or any, any kind of brokenness, he has not promised to take that away. Friends, the only right reason to come to Jesus is because you know you're a sinner. You know you need a savior. You need forgiveness and you repent and trust in Jesus. That's the only way to come to Jesus. All of those other things will fail you. If you want your circumstances to be lifted, you can try that. It's, it's not going to work. Simon bought into this lie that he would be somebody if he had power. That he could be somebody great if he had this kind of power. And ultimately, his faith was found wanting. His faith was found to be non-existent. But <sighs> let me feel heavy right now, and I get that. But I actually have some really good news for you, like incredibly good news for you. It doesn't really matter how you start. It matters how you finish. So it doesn't matter if your first response to the gospel was not repentance and trusting in Jesus, nor your second or third or fourth or 27th. It doesn't matter if you're 7 or 87. What matters is where you've ultimately put your faith and trust and how you finish the race. So what's cool about this text, and maybe what's hard about this text, is we look at Acts 8, and it doesn't look like Simon ever responded in repentance and trust. But as Brad mentioned last week, there's this dude named Saul, and his story's not over, right? 
Saul ravaging the church, throwing Christians in jail. Christians are fleeing him. And we know if we read a little bit further, God's going to come and he's going to be wrecked in the best possible way. Like Saul's life is going to be wrecked in the best possible way. You see, he finished his life as probably the best, the most uh, uh, important missionary ever to walk the earth. The churches he planted, the, the people that came to faith through his ministry is incredible. He went from persecutor to proclaimer. And if God can do that with him, he can do that with you. Or maybe there's somebody in your mind that you're thinking of. It's not you. But someone you love dearly who does not know and love Jesus, and they've responded to the gospel in a different way. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's, maybe it's to purchase something or to, to come to him for a wrong reason. Or maybe they're just apathetic and they don't care. The gospel has power to save to the uttermost. So maybe there who comes to your mind right now, let me just remind you, their story's not over till God says it is. So I just want to ask you and encourage you to pray for them. Pray that God, even now, would work to rescue them. Listen, we're not Christians because we're like smart <laughs> or smarter than everybody else. We're Christians because we recognize our need for a Savior. And we've decided <laughs> there's nothing else I can do but throw myself on the Savior. God wants to do that kind of work in you. So my final question that I just want to leave you with is one we've talked about already. How have you responded to the gospel? Let me pray. God, what we see here in Acts 8 is a number of different ways that people encountered you and then responded differently. And Lord, I confess that I would just easily, as easily be Simon or Saul if you had not broken into my life and showed me my sin and need for a savior. And so God, I pray right now for maybe some of those people who are in here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would show up big time. Or in the lives of people that, that, that have been brought to the hearts and minds of, of our church family, would you would you step in and save people? What I love about you, Jesus, is you glory in redeeming people from all different backgrounds and ages. And Lord, I just ask you to do that. And then Lord, I pray that you would help us, Grace Fellowship Church, to be joy bearers wherever we go. In our schools, in our workplace, in our families, as we head to the grocery store and go to the park and eat out, would you help us to bring joy with us by proclaiming Jesus and living for Jesus every day? Lord, you are so, so, so good. And would you help us to give everything we have to you because you died and made us alive with you. With you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.